our perspective was, shucks, um, wouldn't it be fun if we were to build a graphics chip so that we can play video games in 3D? That was it. That was the entire business plan. <laughs> As we made these processors more and more and more programmable, we semi-tripped into the next innovation. You said, hold on a second, this GPU is the most efficient floating point processor that man has ever made. If I could just figure out how to program it, if I can describe all of my problems as a triangle, <laughs> I could solve the world's problems. What does it take for an idea to change the world? Maybe it starts with a light bulb moment, a sudden flash of insight. But having an idea and delivering on its potential are very different things. It's the difference between invention and innovation. In this podcast series, we're looking at the people and stories behind world-changing ideas. Some of them you'll have heard of. Some of them you won't. Sometimes it takes decades of work to create what looks like an overnight success. By telling these stories, we hope to illuminate how innovation really works in practice. I'm Tom Standage from The Economist, and this is Game Changers. You've probably noticed that computers suddenly seem to have got a lot smarter in the past decade. If you're typing an email, your computer or smartphone may offer to finish the sentence for you. You can ask a gadget on your kitchen counter to play some ACDC while you're doing the washing up. An automatic translation of web pages in foreign languages or restaurant menus on holiday actually works, or well enough to be useful in any case. These are just some of the examples of how the technology of artificial intelligence, or AI, has improved in recent years. What is AI? Essentially, it's getting computers to do things that could previously only be done by humans. It's an idea that's been around since the 1950s. But in all of these modern examples, the technology that's powering things behind the scenes is a relatively new kind of AI called deep learning. The first large-scale application of deep learning that came online on your phones around 2012 was speech recognition. And nowadays, pretty much all of the speech recognition systems use deep learning. Every time you use a web search engine, there's a deep learning algorithm helping show you more relevant results. Every time you check email, there's actually a deep learning system probably checking what is spam and what isn't. Banks use it to detect fraud. They churn through lots of transactions and learn to spot the ones that look dodgy. Content recommendations. So you go on to Spotify, say, and it notices that you listen to a lot of Megadeth. And then you'll get a little panel coming up saying, have you also considered Metallica? So why did this technology suddenly appear in everything from voice assistants to cars to smartphones to CCTV cameras in the past few years? What changed the game? That's what we'll be digging into in this episode. And the answer turns out to be rather unexpected. It was made possible by a breakthrough in a completely different field. A breakthrough that was literally a game changer because it changed the way that video games worked. But what do video games have to do with artificial intelligence? To answer that question, we have to go back into the history of AI to find out what deep learning is and how it works. 
Modern deep learning systems are the latest incarnation of one of the oldest ideas in AI, that the way to make computers clever is to take inspiration from the structure of the brain. The human brain contains billions of interconnected cells called neurons, which send and receive electrical impulses. In other words, the brain is a neural network. This prompted computer scientists to build simple neural networks in software containing a few dozen artificial neurons. Joshua Bengio is a computer scientist at the University of Montreal who's known as one of the pioneers of deep learning. The approach of building artificial intelligence based on inspiration from the brain and neural networks is uh, one of the earliest ones. The researcher that's recognized for really implementing some of these ideas of learning in computers is Frank Rosenblatt, and he had a paper in 1959 on what was called the perceptron. And so we owe a lot to those people in that history. Rosenblatt, whose work was funded by the US Navy, built a system that could recognize whether a square was in the left hand or the right hand half of an otherwise blank image. The crucial thing was that his system was not explicitly programmed to do this. Instead, it learnt how to do it after being shown a few dozen examples and being told the correct answer in each case. This idea of teaching a computer using examples, rather than programming it with specific rules, is called machine learning. But these early systems, which had a single group or layer of artificial neurons, were very limited in what they could do. The techniques for learning then, like Rosenblatt's perceptron, were not very powerful. The original perceptron could only learn one layer of neurons, and that means it could only do simple tasks that we call linear prediction or linear classification. And most interesting tasks are not like that. Even so, Rosenblatt told the New York Times in 1958 that this technology would eventually be able to recognise people, read text and handwriting, understand speech and translate from one language to another. In 1969, two leading AI researchers, Marvin Minsky and Seymour Papert, published a book attacking Rosenblatt's work and emphasising its limitations. That killed off interest in neural networks in favour of a rival approach to building AI systems based on symbolic logic. Joshua Bengio again. So these symbolic systems have dominated um, and replaced the neural networks mostly in the 60s, 70s and, and 80s. And it's only in the late 80s that neural networks came back. That's when I got onto the scene. By the late 1980s, researchers had realised that the way to get neural networks to handle more complex tasks was to increase the number of neurons in the network and arrange the network in multiple layers, with the outputs of each layer of neurons cross-connected to the inputs of the next layer. In the 80s, we understood how we could train not just one layer, but many layers. And Jeff Hinton and David Grumelhart, on the one hand, and Jan Lequin, on the other hand, independently discovered how this could be done. Joshua Bengio ended up working with Jan Lequin, a French computer scientist who added his own twist to neural networks, making them better at processing images. His group built a system that could read handwritten numbers and letters. Jan and I were working for AT&T Bell Labs in the early 90s, and we actually built a system that would be then used for many years for uh, reading the amounts on checks. We deliver, we deliver. 
a guaranteed morning delivery. And the U.S. Postal Service was also interested in this kind of thing, to analyze the letters and digits to read the addresses on letters, right, to automate the process of sorting the mail and reducing the human costs. Express mail from your postal service. We deliver for you. So that actually took place and was deployed in the 90s. The system was trained using thousands of examples of handwritten digits. So we have this database of 60,000 images of handwritten digits. And in those days, this was a huge data set. We built some of the best systems then to classify these images. During the training process, the system was repeatedly shown images of particular numbers and letters. If it guessed wrong, the connections between the neurons in the network were adjusted so that next time it was more likely to get the answer right. As this process was repeated thousands of times, the system gradually became more accurate. In other words, it learnt by example. By the early 1990s, it was clear that a neural network with more layers of neurons, a deeper network in the jargon, could handle more complex tasks, like reading handwritten postcodes. So why didn't neural networks catch on this time? What happened is there were a lot of promises made. I mean, people claiming all kinds of things. You know, It didn't deliver in terms of the industrial application as much as had been promised, but it's just that the promises were unrealistic. There were a lot of things missing. And then people turned to other machine learning methods. So by 2000, very few people in the AI and machine learning community were using neural nets. Once again, neural networks had fallen from favor. To scale to more complex tasks, we would have needed bigger data sets and more powerful compute. By the early 2000s, it looked like game over for neural networks. But in fact, the games were just getting started. If you are interested in technology and kind of what the technology of the future might be and where it's coming from, then games are a great place to look. Jordan Erica Weber is an expert on video games and co-author of the book 10 Things Video Games Can Teach Us. Technology invented for gaming, she says, often ends up being used for other things. There's a lot of interesting stuff coming out of games. Virtual reality is a big one. It has been taken from games and used for other things, like in medicine. It's used to treat people with PTSD uh, through kind of virtual reality exposure therapy. It's also used for training people, training surgeons, in fact, uh, training firefighters safely, you know, place them in a virtual firefighting situation instead of in a real one. And our technology is also used uh, in the military. So with things like uh, recruitment games, games that are developed to recruit people, but also the very controllers that we play games with because of the familiarity that young people have with them. They're used for things like piloting drones, which is, you know, a bit dystopian, but there you go. So what do you think it is that makes video gaming such a rich source of ideas and technologies that end up being used in other fields? I'm afraid I have a kind of cynical answer to this one, um, which is that innovation tends only to happen really in those industries that people know are profitable. And video games are hugely popular and hugely profitable. So naturally, people are more willing to work on technological innovations if they know that they will get a profit. My colleague Tim Cross 
technology editor at The Economist, has another theory for why video games are a source of so much innovation. For most computers out there, certainly most computers that live on people's desks or live in, in people's pockets, a video game is far and away the most demanding application that that computer is ever going to run. So they're always going to play a role in, in sort of pushing the boundaries of computing forward. And so to that extent, yeah, I, I, I think they drive quite a lot of innovation, actually. One innovation in computer graphics, which emerged in the 1990s, was a game changer. Up until then, all the graphics were two-dimensional. They had no depth to them. And in the middle of the, of the 1990s, games makers started experimenting with 3D graphics. But the chips that were in computers at the time weren't really designed to do the very particular kinds of maths that were needed for that. So a whole bunch of hardware companies started producing chips that specialised in those kinds of calculations. This meant building a new kind of chip that could handle not just the dots that make up two-dimensional graphics, but the triangles used in three-dimensional graphics. This new kind of chip came to be called a GPU. Jordan Erica Weber again. So GPU just stands for Graphics Processing Unit. It basically just means like a distinct kind of circuit that just handles graphics, or at least that was its original purpose, right? As graphics, you know, in games became more and more powerful, the GPU also needed to become more and more powerful to be able to handle that. So for the longest time, GPU development has been driven by video games. One reason why a GPU is better at graphics than an ordinary processing chip is that it contains a lot more processing engines or cores. I mean, the simple way to think about it is in a computer, you've got your CPU, your central processing unit, which is kind of like the big brain. And then you've got the GPU, uh, the graphics processing unit. And the difference between them is basically the number of cores. With a CPU, the central processing unit, there are like two cores, maybe four cores. With a GPU, you've got hundreds or thousands. GPUs tend to perform relatively simple operations on many, 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 many different streams of data at once. So in, in a video game, you might be trying to render thousands of different triangles at once, and you can pass those triangles through a GPU in batches of thousands and thousands at once, and it does sort of relatively simple maths on them. So a GPU is optimised for doing a particular kind of processing, the sort needed for graphics, very quickly and in very large volume. Computer scientists call this parallel processing. In the 1990s, demand for graphical processing power was increasing as games became more complex and more realistic. I mean, the big thing that kind of made this necessary was the move to 3D. It took the 3D graphics computing away from the CPU and made it much, much easier and simpler and quicker to generate 3D graphics, which obviously was a huge thing for gaming. I think that was in the 90s. This is when you started seeing games like Quake. Oh, Quake was awesome. I loved that game. It had proper 3D graphics, really atmospheric gothic setting, and an online multiplayer mode. I played a lot of Quake back in the day. And also in games consoles, you had the, the PlayStation 1, the Nintendo 64. Everyone remembers Super Mario 64 and how wild it was that Mario went from like this 2D little sprite to this fully 3D character. It's me, Mario! You suddenly had these worlds and a camera that you could move. You could turn it around and look at Mario from all different angles and look at the world from all different angles and not just go from left to right, but go forwards and backwards and diagonal and up and down. And it just kind of, it was mind-blowing at the time. It was indeed, but it wasn't just gamers like me who were enjoying the new possibilities being opened up by these powerful GPU chips. 
other people were starting to realise that GPUs could be used for other sorts of computing. So just to take a trip down memory lane, when I was at university, I was dating a computer scientist. And for their dissertation, uh, they were doing stuff about modelling fluid dynamics using a graphics card instead of the CPU. And at the time, I mean, this must have been in the early 2000s. And I remember going, you know, as a gamer, I was like, excuse me, you're using the graphics card to do what? And one chip-making company in particular, called NVIDIA, was pushing the boundaries of what GPU chips could do. As NVIDIA's co-founder and CEO, Jensen Huang, who you also heard at the start of this episode, recalled in a speech in 2011. We wanted to make our GPUs more and more and more expressive, to the point where any type of visualization algorithm could be expressed. And this really put NVIDIA on the map. There was one particular product launched by NVIDIA called the GeForce 256 for our more beardy listeners. That appeared in 1999. And what was unique about that was you could essentially run custom code on it. And it was this programmability and this sort of flexibility, which I guess eventually led to the world in which you can use GPUs for things that really have nothing to do with video game graphics at all. The first graphics chips were built to accelerate commonly used two-dimensional or three-dimensional calculations. But as graphics became more complex, with fancy textures and lighting effects, chips started to become more flexible. NVIDIA was very early to the idea that this should not be just a video card that shows a picture, but something that becomes programmable. And so uh, NVIDIA often talks about the invention of the GPU as a moment when graphics became programmable. Brian Catanzaro is a vice president at NVIDIA. At the beginning, the problem was trying to figure out how to take a 3D description of the world and all the textures and lighting that simulate the way that a world looks and run programs to turn that into a picture that you could see on a TV. Now, over time, it became clear that there's a lot of different kinds of drawings that you might want to do, like everything else artistic, there's a lot of expression. And that means that it needed to become programmable. So rather than just having a fixed function of drawing a triangle, the GPU started running programs for every pixel on the screen. And, you know, there's millions of pixels on the screen and all of these little programs need to run in parallel. And so the GPU became a very highly programmable parallel processor. And guess what some people started thinking about using GPUs for? Tim Cross again. And then in, I think, maybe the mid-2000s, people noticed that the sort of maths that you use to, to drive 3D graphics in a game like Unreal or, or Counter-Strike or something were very, very similar on a mathematical level to the sorts that you would also use in scientific computing and in the sort of calculations that, that underpin machine learning. For Joshua Bengio and others keeping the flame of neural networks alive, many of whom had by this stage ended up in Canada, this was a hopeful sign. In the early 2000s, the GPUs started being designed for games. And, you know, one of the researchers I had worked with, Patrice Simard, started showing that you can actually get pretty nice speedups for neural nets using these things. Patrice Simart found that GPUs could make neural networks run three or four times faster, which was pretty cool. But that was just the beginning. We were very fortunate that GPUs primarily designed for computer graphics turns out to be very well suited for the computations we need in neural networks. Andrew Ng was an assistant professor at Stanford University at the time, working on artificial intelligence. We had seen these interesting you know, press releases, documentation coming out of NVIDIA about this cooler programming language. 
Jensen Huang, CEO of NVIDIA, had placed a bold bet. Let's not just use GPUs for computer graphics, let's use them for other types of computation. CUDA was NVIDIA's way of allowing people to use GPUs for other kinds of computing. NVIDIA Vice President Brian Catanzaro. CUDA was the first aggressively general-purpose programming environment for GPUs, and that uh, was released in November of 2006. Uh, And I remember that very clearly because I was a a graduate student at Berkeley at the time. And I was looking into how to accelerate machine learning. And NVIDIA came by and showed me how CUDA worked and gave me access to uh, one of the first CUDA GPUs. And I think the, the way that NVIDIA was primarily involved was by making CUDA very programmable and also working really hard to get academics to use it and get the consciousness in the academic community that GPUs were not just for graphics, but could be used for many other things as well. GPUs seem to offer a way to make neural networks run faster. That would allow for deeper networks with more layers of neurons that might be able to handle more complicated problems than reading handwritten postcodes. But would it really work? Andrew Ng was told to stay away from the whole idea. In the early 2000s, a lot of people were skeptical about neural networks. Uh, when I you know, told my friends I was excited about the idea, I was trying some things out, some of my very smart, very well-meaning friends pulled me aside and gave me career advice. They said, Andrew, you know, this is really bad for your career. Just buddy, just giving you, helping you out, you really should do something else. I remember vividly giving a presentation at a workshop in MIT organized by the National Science Foundation, where I claimed that deep learning could be useful for computer vision. And um, a very well-known, very prominent, quite famous computer vision professor stood up in the audience and yelled at me. And, and that was actually quite scary. And to some people in academia, the idea of plugging in some video game chips to speed things up, rather than inventing lots of fancy new mathematical theory, seemed like an intellectual shortcut, a form of cheating. One surprising piece of pushback I got was um, that it wasn't an academically rigorous approach to scaling up deep learning. Certainly back then, and to some extent now, I think an unfortunate part of AI research is, you know, if there isn't a lot of math in it, ideally really complicated math that no one understands, then it's less academically rigorous and, and maybe people don't like it as much. Back then, if you're just building a network that's 10 times faster and it gets much better results, well, where's the math? And so I think uh, there were actually research groups that had trouble uh, getting research papers into conferences for that reason, which really, I think, wasn't a very good reason. Joshua Bengio, toiling away in the wilderness, sorry, I mean Canada, also faced continuing scepticism about the whole idea of neural networks. The word neural was something you didn't want to put in your paper because it decreased your chances of being accepted in those conferences. And it's mostly a question of trends and and fashion, and I had a hard time to convince my students to work on neural nets. The problem, recalls Brian Catanzaro, was that back in the early 2000s, neural networks just weren't cool. Deep learning is an old idea. In fact, that's the reason why I didn't work on it when I was a graduate student at Berkeley is because at the time it was out of fashion. Jan LeCun, uh, Yosho Bengio, and Jeff Hinton were, were seen somewhat as prophets in the wilderness, you know, wandering around talking about deep learning like they had been for decades and decades, but it, it just didn't have very good results. And so people focused on other things. But Joshua Bengio and other believers in deep neural networks felt they were finally making progress. 
named 2009, I think it was Andrew Ng's group at Stanford who uh, had a paper where they showed an amazing speed up for convolutional nets, the things that was key for computer vision, which was like the golden task that we were trying to solve then. Andrew Ng's research group at Stanford had taken Yan LeCun's neural network architecture for computer vision and made it run on NVIDIA's GPU chips using its CUDA programming system. The result was fast, really fast. It was 70 times faster than using an ordinary processor chip. A deep neural network that had previously required several weeks of training could now be trained in a few hours. My first GPU server was built by Ian Goodfellow and his roommate in his dorm room at Stanford University. And he and I and some of my students, we started implementing neural networks on it and were able to get it to run much faster than we ever could on the CPU. But I think that then created some of the foundation to scale up neural networks. Other research groups started to pay more attention to the idea of deep neural networks running on GPUs, a form of machine learning that had by this time come to be known as deep learning. And what's now regarded as the big bang for deep learning, the starting point of the modern AI boom, came in 2012. I think the moment that it sprung into broader awareness was when Alex Krzyzewski and Jeff Hinton published the ImageNet results. Ah yes, ImageNet. So it's this annual competition between teams who build computer vision systems. It's sort of the Super Bowl of computer vision. The contest centres around a database of photographs divided into a thousand labelled categories such as trumpet or lion. In each category, there are a thousand or so example images taken from the internet. Before the competition, rival teams train their systems using this database, and they then compete to see whose system can correctly label a set of previously unseen images. In 2010, the winning system correctly identified 72% of the test images, and in 2011, the winning system scored 75%. Humans, on average, score 95%. So what happened in 2012 when Alex Krzyzewski entered the competition? Brian Catanzaro again. Alex Krzyzewski was a graduate student at the University of Toronto in Jeff Hinton's lab. They both had this philosophy that the thing that was really missing from deep learning in order to change the world was scale. Uh, and if we could only train these models on much more data, then they would really start to, to get extraordinary results. And um, in order to test that belief, they wrote a lot of software to scale training of these computer vision models on GPUs. And Alex Krzyzewski in particular wrote a lot of extraordinarily clever CUDA code that was very optimized for the GPUs of the day. And with that code, he was able to get breakthrough results. Krzyzewski's GPU-powered deep learning system, called AlexNet, won the 2012 competition with an astonishing score of 85%, 11 percentage points ahead of its nearest rival. Their results were so compelling that they redefined the field of computer vision essentially forever. They were able to do that themselves as graduate students working really hard and really changed the world. This huge improvement in accuracy showed how powerful deep learning was compared with other approaches to image recognition. Andrew Ng. The fact that a neural network outperformed all of these traditional approaches to computer vision, that definitely changed the mind of a lot of people in computer vision about whether deep learning was a flaky thing soon to die out and be forgotten or a promising approach. 
In the following year's contest, almost every team had switched to using deep learning, and nearly all of them scored more than the system that had finished second the year before. These results showed what deep learning could do. Joshua Bengio. And suddenly, you know, it changed the game. I mean, from US Postal Service and reading checks to actually having computer vision deployed in the real world, that's a completely different game, right? People started to pay attention, not just within the AI community, but across the technology industry as a whole, recalls Brian Catanzaro. Alex Krzyzewski lit the spark that finally set the world aflame with this technology. And of course, when that happened, everyone paid attention. And at NVIDIA, we decided that we were going to start making enormous investments in deep learning because it was kind of obvious to NVIDIA that this was the huge market opportunity that CUDA had been searching for. You know, all of those years of investment and all of the evangelism with academics and developers was finally coming to a point where we could get some results that really changed the world. Brian Catanzaro, who was an AI researcher at the time, teamed up with Andrew Ng to demonstrate the power of this approach to Google. Andrew Ng and I got together and started working on this project using GPUs that actually was able to take a thousand nodes from Google's supercomputer and replace it with three. I wound up pitching to Google the idea of using Google's, uh, even back then, massive compute resources for scaling up neural networks. And so that wound up being the start of the Google Brain project. And one day, these Google Brain experiments produced a surprising result. When I started Google Brain, one of my first projects was building a very large neural network to watch tons of YouTube videos and have the neural network, let's just see what it learns. And so one of my interns in the Google Brain team, he had been leading the experiments. I remember one day he pulled me over. He said, hey, Andrew, come over, you know, check this out. I looked at this computer and he showed me that now slightly iconic image of a ghostly cat peering out at me because his software had watched tons of YouTube videos and discovered by itself that there's this thing that apparently appears in a lot of YouTube videos, which you and I would call a cat. Yes, AI had discovered cats on the internet. There there are actually some large internet companies that I know they saw that work, and that was the inspiration for them to build up their own AI teams. Since the Big Bang of 2012, deep learning has been applied in all sorts of areas, from speech recognition to language translation to fraud detection. My personal favourite is the researchers who used it to show that howling wolves have regional accents. In all these fields, though, it turns out that using deeper networks, much larger training sets and faster hardware in the form of GPUs can deliver big performance improvements. Those outlandish predictions made by Frank Rosenblatt in 1958 that neural networks would be able to read text and handwriting, understand speech and translate from one language to another have all come true. It just took a while. Deep learning is now the dominant form of artificial intelligence and the advocates of neural networks after years in the wilderness and indeed Canada have been resoundingly vindicated. In 2018, Joshua Bengio, Jeff Hinton and Jan LeCun won the Turing Award, the computing equivalent of the Nobel Prize for their work on artificial intelligence. But that's not to say that deep learning is perfect or that artificial intelligence is now a solved problem. Far from it, the rapid adoption of the technology has highlighted its drawbacks and limitations. 
In most cases, deep learning systems are simply learning how to do something by analysing thousands or millions of examples. And if they're trained using flawed data, they'll produce flawed results. Tim Cross, The Economist's technology editor. There's an old phrase in computing which says garbage in means garbage out. And what that means is that your, your deep learning system, all it's going to do is look for correlations in the data that you present it. And it's very good at doing that. So if you feed it data with assumptions built in, you will get those assumptions spat back out at you. A good example or a famous example might be trying to use deep learning uh, to decide who to hire at your company. And if you feed it a whole load of data based on your past hiring decisions, we know from other research that in lots of countries, if you have a foreign sounding name or a name that sounds like you're you know, from Africa or you're, you're black or Middle Eastern or something like that, you're less likely to be hired than somebody who has uh, a Western sounding name. Now, if you simply feed that to a deep learning system, it's going to look through and go, aha, there's a strong correlation between what someone's surname sounds like and the chance of them getting hired. So you know, I'm going to notice that and build it into my model. What you end up with then is a deep learning system that appears to make sort of racist recommendations. If you feed contaminated data to a machine learning system, you're going to get a contaminated answer out the other end. There are countless examples of how feeding flawed or biased data into deep learning systems has led to sexist or racist outcomes. Those working in the field are also keenly aware of the technology's limits and the danger of putting too much trust in it. Joshua Bengio again. So there's garbage in, garbage out. If your data is not representative of the task, then it can do poorly. And it weighs when it's deployed that can hurt people. And so this is why governments need to intervene, like any technology. I mean, airplanes can be very helpful, but they can be dangerous. And that's why we have very strong regulation around them. The debate over the ethics and regulation of AI is just getting started. It's vitally important because deep learning has made such rapid progress in the past decade and is being applied in all sorts of unexpected ways. But the breakthrough that made all this possible involved technology borrowed from an unrelated field, video games. So what does this tell us about innovation? Tim Cross again. You can never be sure where progress is going to come from. It's quite hard to sit down and say... I want to invent X, therefore I will spend my time working on Y. Because inventing something by definition is, is learning to do something you don't yet know how to do. And the missing piece, for all you know, might be in some apparently unrelated field that you, you haven't even considered. And I think that really sort of bolsters the argument for old style, pure scientific research, because even something that seems abstruse and a waste of time and just a child's toy, like a video game, turns out, can have all sorts of uses in the real world for, quotes serious subjects too. This story also highlights a technology that doesn't work very well today might suddenly have its fortunes transformed tomorrow, so perseverance may be necessary until the conditions are right for a new idea to take hold. Andrew Ung. I think we often underappreciate the importance of timing for technology. The 1970s, it was the wrong timing for deep learning. With the caveat that I'm actually really grateful that a few luminaries, you know, like Jeff Hinton, Yoshi Benjo, Yana Kun, kept it alive, that they kept working on it for a long time, which to their credit and ultimately wound up helping a lot of people. A lot of people, including NVIDIA's shareholders. Brian Catanzaro. When I started at NVIDIA in 2011, I think it was somewhere around 11 or $12 a share. 
And then, you know, today, NVIDIA is somewhere around $800 a share if you adjust for the stock splits. So it's gone up quite a bit. I was astonished, actually, this week to learn that NVIDIA is now the ninth biggest company on the S&P 500, which is, I think, quite extraordinary and honestly reflects the uh, future growth that Wall Street believes artificial intelligence is going to have. So, you know, I think video games are going to continue to drive a lot of innovation, both in artificial intelligence, as well as graphics and other simulation technologies. So what might be the next game-changing innovation to come out of the gaming industry? Jordan Erica Weber thinks one idea in particular is worth keeping an eye on. So the big future-looking innovation that people are talking about at the moment that has come from games is the the metaverse. So a lot of gaming companies are talking about this at the moment. Epic Games is the big one, the creators of Fortnite. Fortnite, as you probably know, is, I mean, less a game and more just a hangout space. It's the kind of virtual playground that the teenagers hang out in. And Epic basically wants to expand that. They want to in a sense, kind of create the new internet, the new virtual space that everyone hangs out in. Facebook has started becoming interested in this as well. I think Mark Zuckerberg has in fact created a task force explicitly for this purpose. There is a bit of a dystopian kind of side to it though. People like to reference Ready Player One, but the thing with that book is the reason people go into the metaverse in that book is because they live in a dystopian world. And especially with the climate crisis, I sometimes wish we would pay more attention to fixing the real world before we start thinking about the virtual one. Will we all live, work and play in a virtual reality metaverse in the future? Who knows? We explore this idea further in our sister show, Babbage. But if the story of AI and GPUs tells us anything, it's that we should be open to crazy sounding ideas, no matter where they come from. In the next episode, we'll look at a different kind of world-changing innovation. It's something that affects almost every aspect of our lives, but is easy to overlook because it seems so obvious. The shipping container. It's standardised. It was invented precisely in order to reduce the power of labour. It ended up becoming the hegemonic form of transportation because of war. And it now makes possible the globalisation of commerce across the world. So in some ways, the container actually stands as a kind of a symbol of capitalism. You can hear the full story on the next episode of Game Changers. Thanks for listening to this episode. It was a Tempo and Talker production for The Economist. The producer was Tom Pooley, and the executive producer was Sandra Schmueli. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist. <laughs>